0: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. After a big June of victories for the First Amendment at the Supreme Court that now has a freshly opened seat on its bench, we are joined by Lori Windham, Senior Counsel at Beckett Law, to go behind the High Court's famous red curtain and discuss just how these crucial cases are argued. This is the Influence Watch Podcast. In a Supreme Court term that closed last month, First Amendment free speech protections won three major victories against efforts by so-called progressives to compel dissenters to mouth agreement with, or to fund support for, the left's values. Those three victories provoked the New York Times to complain, in a front-page article that pretended not to be an editorial, that conservatives were, quote, weaponizing free speech. Two of the cases, the Masterpiece cake shop dispute over a wedding cake, which we discussed a couple of episodes ago, and Nifla v. Becerra, which challenged a California law that all but required pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise for state-funded abortions, dealt directly with religious freedom. And so we're happy to welcome Lori Windham, Senior Counsel of Beckett Law, also known as the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, which filed Friend of the Court briefs in both those cases. She'll help us discuss the Supreme Court's decisions and how influencers like Beckett organize to win big decisions like these. Okay, so Laurie, the first thing I should say is disclosure that years ago I worked alongside you at Beckett. Uh, I also want to point out that you're a Harvard Law School grad and... Uh, that in your career you have defended a very wide array of different religions, correct? I mean, Beckett is not simply defend a defender of Christians in the courts, is it? Uh,
1: that's exactly right. We like to say that we defend everyone from A to Z Anglicans to Zoroastrians, and there's an important reason for that. We believe that religious freedom is not something that just belongs to you or to me or someone who do- believes like us. Religious freedom is a fundamental human right, and it's something that must be defended for all faiths. And so that is what we aim to do at Beckett, and that is what we have done at Beckett.
0: Another thing that uh, is distinctive about Beckett is that while many firms that are similar get into other areas besides religious liberty, Beckett stays laser-focused just on religious liberty. Isn't that correct?
1: That's exactly right. And Beckett is small by design. We want to be the people who can go in and find the right case in the right place and take that and set a good precedent. And so our job is not to uh, try and cover the whole panoply of cases out there uh, because you'll tire yourself out really quickly doing that. There are a lot of interesting issues, uh, but to focus on one thing, which is religious freedom, to know the law of religious freedom and to do that really well. And so if we are to divide our focus and do other things, we'll be less effective. And I think our effectiveness speaks for itself. We are 5-0 at the Supreme Court and uh, hope to keep that record running.
0: Yeah, one, batting a 1,000 of the Supremes is not bad. Well, uh, Mike, why don't you get our discussion started
2: with a uh, recap of some of these decisions? So the first one, uh, the first case that was decided, uh, we uh, Scott, you and I discussed a couple weeks ago, and that was Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and the uh, the question that was posed in that case effectively was, can a religious Christian baker be compelled by state non-discrimination law to make a custom cake celebrating a same-sex wedding? Uh, and the court ruled by 7-2 to that they aren't really sure, but man, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was really mean to religious people, and therefore the the baker must be allowed not to be punished.
0: Yes, and as I recall, uh, Laurie the baker w- made it clear that it, he wasn't saying there were classes of people he was refu- he would refuse to do business with. He was only saying that there was a particular ceremony that he wouldn't bake for. Am I right?
1: That's exactly right, and that's where uh, religious freedom arguments really come into this. Is he was saying, "Hey, look, if you want to come into my shop and just buy a cake off the shelf, here." Here are all the cakes. We'll happily, I'll happily sell you one. It's just that I can't participate in and celebrate a religious ceremony that is contrary to my beliefs. And we have a long history in America, and this was recognized uh, in the 7-2 opinion in this case that we don't coerce people to participate in religious ceremonies they disagree with. The uh, uh, the majority opinion talked about the fact that clergy can't be coerced into officiating at a wedding at which uh, it would be contrary to their religious beliefs. And it's interesting to note that when clergy are doing that, they're also doing that uh, on behalf of the state. They are actually participating in signing the marriage license for that couple. But even in that role, they don't forfeit their religious freedom, and they can continue to follow their religious beliefs. The same should be true of a baker who's just trying to live out his faith.
0: Uh, Now, Mike, the next case we want to uh, talk about is the Nifla v. Becerra case. Tell us the background.
2: Uh, so, like Masterpiece Cake Shop, this was also a compelled a compelled speech contrary to your uh, re- religious beliefs uh, situation. Uh, what California did was they passed a law that, to put it simply, basically compelled pro life groups that operate crisis pregnancy centers to advertise for this state's publicly funded abortions. Uh, needless to say when you are a pro-life institution uh, who is opposed to abortion and exists uh, to persuade uh, women about alternatives to abortion and the state comes in and says you have to advertise our publicly funded taxpayer funded abortion you know uh, abortion services and family quote-unquote family planning services uh, that that implicates their religious freedom and so the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates which is a Group or that, NIFLA. Or NIFLA, mm-hmm. which is a, gr- a group that—an uh, association of these uh, pro-life crisis pregnancy organizations uh, sued the state uh, to protect the the, um, the freedom of these pro-life pregnancy centers to operate in accordance with their beliefs. And it made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled fi- uh, by a very tight 5-4 to four decision, which is kind of scary, uh, that absolutely not. The state could not uh, force— that medical professionals do not lose their religious freedom when they uh, when they are working as medical professionals, and even the non-licensed pregnancy centers, the in, the rules that were put on them were also uh, overly burdensome of their of their speech.
0: Yes, so Lori, that's right, isn't it? That it, that the court's decision in this case was based heavily on the free speech part of the First Amendment.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And what the court did there was something that's really important, and I think we'll um, we'll see we'll apply more broadly. Is it said that when you are talking about a content-based speech regulation, when you are restricting someone's speech because of its content,
2: and it was and it was very clear in this California law that it was targeted directly at these pro-life institutions.
1: That's exactly right. And when you are doing that, the government is going to have to face strict scrutiny, which is the highest legal test there is. Um, What's interesting is the Supreme Court didn't go back and say, no, we have to look at the legislators' heart of hearts and know if they were really meaning to discriminate against pro-life pregnancy centers. They said, look, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And so if you have a law that is targeted at a particular type of speech that law is going to have a very difficult time proving that it is— the government will have a very difficult time proving that law is constitutional.
0: And in the 5-4 decision, who wrote the majority opinion?
1: That would be Justice Kennedy.
0: So, and uh, as I recall, this is the case in which, you know, he is himself a Californian, uh, and he seemed to be uh, especially tough on his fellow Californians uh, in this matter, uh, and in fact upbraided them saying that— the way to go forward is to go back uh, and look at the original uh, First Amendment. Is that is that correct? Was that a, was that a somewhat surprising? That, that was yes. that was
2: yeah. Kennedy wrote that. That was a concurrence. Justice Thomas wrote the majority. Oh, I'm. But you're Justice right. Thomas my wrote the Majority yes. opinion, but Kennedy wrote a scathing concurrence. Uh, and of course, Kennedy is from California, in which he California likes to see itself as very progressive, very forward-thinking, very the vanguard of. Of, of America, and uh, Justice Kennedy was like, "Hey, wait a minute! It's not forward thinking to make people violate their beliefs."
0: Yeah, so that for for his uh, the end, and of course he knew he was going to be resigning, so that was an interesting way to go out. Uh, well, Mike, uh, the third case that we want to talk about that's uh, free speech related here is uh, came down on the very last day, Janice v. AFSCME. Tell us who AFSCME is and what was the case involved.
2: Even religious liberty comes back to employment law. The American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Uh, So Illinois and 21 other states had, until last Wednesday, a a provision in their law which required government workers who are represented by a government worker union, like the American Federation of State, County, or Municipal Employees, to pay what are so-called agency fees, to pay the union that you don't want to be a part of and that you aren't technically a part of. But that represents you because it's a union privilege that the unions have under state law, uh, to do the, the work of the union. And uh, Mark Janice, who is a Illinois public worker, uh, sued saying that that violated his, his free speech rights. that, that was compelled, that was improperly compelled speech. And by a five to four ruling authored by Justice Samuel Alito, the Supreme Court agreed. Yeah, so all three cases then are about compelled speech, the, uh, the baker being
0: compelled, to express himself, uh, the pro-life pregnancy centers being compelled to essentially advertise their competition, uh, and Mr. Janice being compelled uh, to have a union speak for him when it in fact did not speak for him. Well, uh, Lori, was Beckett active in these cases, and if so, how?
1: Uh, yes, we were active in all three of these cases. We filed amicus briefs with the Supreme Court in all three. Um, and the value of doing that is you can bring Uh, different arguments to the court's attention. You can also bring different situations to the court's attention. For example, in the NIFLA case, we represent two pro-life pregnancy centers, uh, one in California and one in Baltimore. And so we're able to talk about the fact that these laws are not just something that were happening in California. There are different flavors and variations of these laws in places across the country. And they have different impacts, but they all have the same goal, which is to compel and restrict the speech of certain pregnancy centers. centers whose values are uh, disfavored by state legislators or local officials. And so we were able to uh, tell the Supreme Court a little bit about some of the other cases on the horizon and the fact that this is not an issue that is being decided in a vacuum, that in fact there are a number of these laws across the country and their decision here is going to impact a number of different jurisdictions across the country.
0: So now that the court has handed down the NIFLA decision, uh, how do you think that will affect some of the cases that you have currently underway in other jurisdictions?
1: Uh, Well, we're very hopeful that we will see good decisions uh, in these cases going forward, especially because the Supreme Court has made it clear that you can't go out to target a particular type of speech and get away with it. Uh, In fact, the Supreme Court uh, upheld Uh, Refused to review the good Fourth Circuit decision that we had in our Baltimore Pregnancy Center case And so we were very happy to see that they'd taken that step and we think that going forward the lower courts are really going to uh, Struggle to uphold these sorts of restrictions on pro-life pregnancy centers given the very strong statements that were made in NIFLA Uh,
0: Well, that's fascinating now you said in these cases uh, you participated as, in, as a friend of the court, the uh, Amicus Curiae uh, style brief. Um, for those of our listeners who haven't worked at public interest law firms, uh, explain a little bit about how, you know, why, why do we bother to have uh, these Amicus briefs? And uh, by the way, Beckett was by no means the only person participating, correct? Tell us about how both sides in big fights like this strategize and uh, collect allies and how it all works.
1: Certainly. This is something that uh, has really proliferated in the last few years of the court. Uh, The tradition of filing an amicus brief goes back for many years. Uh, But in the last few terms, we have seen more and more of them. And what happens is that uh, advocacy groups on both sides will show up to make their arguments. And they have the advantage in doing that in that they can make different arguments from the ones that the plaintiffs and uh, the petitioners and the respondents are making. They can bring other cases to the court's attention. This is kind of the traditional historical purpose of a brief is to say, hey, I have an interest in this case. I have something similar that's going to be impacted by this. You need to consider my case too when you're when you're thinking about this ruling. And so they can bring those to the court's attention. Uh, they can have briefs by scholars or experts in a field who can bring issues there to the court's attention. And it's very important because you know that the other side of a case is going to be doing this. They are going to be trying to rally Amica support from their side. And so it's very important to be able to rally Amica support to show that, you're not standing out here alone, that there are a lot of people who are interested in this issue, a lot of people who care about this issue, and a lot of people who want to see the Supreme Court rule in the same way.
0: Uh, do you, who are some of the folks uh, in Niflo or other cases, some of the other groups that, uh, that Beckett often has... Uh, roughly speaking, allied with it in the, the filing of the these kinds of briefs?
1: Well, you certainly also see a number of different religious liberty organizations like ADF and First Liberty. Uh, Heritage Foundation, while it does not actually uh, participate in filing amicus briefs, um, will often uh, have experts who help to support different amicus efforts. Uh, and so and you'll see ACLJ, other religious liberty groups. You'll also see a number of different religious groups, um, groups like the Conference of Catholic Bishops, the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, the Orthodox Union for Jewish Groups, you'll see a number of different large religious organizations who will come in and weigh in to explain how their religious freedom rights may be impacted by the ultimate decision in this case.
0: Thanks. Well, and Mike, uh, there's no shortage of folks trying to influence the other side, and of course all these groups you can look up on influencewatch.org for more information, but uh, tell us about some of the uh, big ones on the other side.
2: So I'll start with a history lesson. The whole enterprise of public interest law, which is essentially, which is what Beckett uh, and other and groups like it do, they advocate on behalf of, obviously on behalf of clients and behalf of individuals, but there is a broader public purpose. For Beckett, it is to protect and defend the First Amendment religious rights of Whoever they're representing, for a group like the Mexican Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund, on the other side, it may be to uh, protect privileged immigrants or uh, or to secure uh, some voting some voting protection. Uh, this whole enterprise was is generally credited by people like Walter Olson, who's written for uh, the Cato Institute scholar, who's written for uh, Capital Research Center on occasion. Um, generally credited to the ford foundation back in the late 1960s the ford foundation was until very recently the largest foundation in the country it is one of the largest funders of progressive and liberal organizations across the spectrum labor uh civil rights um, uh women's studies and universities women's studies and universities civil libertine groups uh and a number of the original left-wing public interest litigation groups i mentioned maldef environmental defense fund earth justice got their got their start with ford money back in the late 1960s and 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 it, originally, there was some question as to whether public interest law would even be allowed, the, the sort of funding of public interest law would even be allowed. Yes, the,
0: the, I, I highly recommend everyone go read Walter Olson's uh, write-up on this in capitalresearch.org. It uh, was taken from his definitive history of uh, law schools, uh, and the, the tricky thing was that um, the 501c3 statutes that allow there to be tax-exempt organizations um, there had never been traditionally these kinds of public interest law firms um, who were out there suing people with strategic public policy goals. And the Ford Foundation was genuinely worried that the IRS might say, this just isn't a legitimate charitable uh, effort. Suing people traditionally hadn't been considered a charitable act, uh, so, it was a very, so it was a complicated question. And intriguingly, it was done, uh, again, it's late 60s, early 70s, this is happening, and the Ford Foundation was very savvy. Uh, they foresaw this issue. They got the current, and I believe it was nine prior, American Bar Association presidents all lined up to say, this is a wonderful thing. I don't know why. I'm
2: shocked, we- shocked to discover that prominent lawyers believe that suing people is a good thing. <laughs> yes,
0: well, and then more jobs for lawyers would be good. But uh, So they got that, and it was a very iffy thing in Olson's account in the uh, Nixon administration whether this would be approved. But interestingly, Donald Rumsfeld was a, was a crucial White House official at the time. Time, um, and weighed in on behalf of the of the uh, the legal effort. Now, of course, this being America, once the principle was established that you could have a charitable uh, public interest law firm, then of course you began to have a wide variety of different views represented among public interest law firms. So that's uh, that that's a classic American story in a way, but. Um, Let's go back to the Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop case, though, Mike, and uh, the ACLU, which is arguably the very first public interest law firm predating that time. Yeah, they were one of the
2: biggest advocacy advocacy law firms uh, of of them all, and probably the first. You're right. Um, the ACLU actually represented in Masterpiece Cake Shop the uh, the couple who were initiated the civil rights commission proceeding. Uh, against the against the baker, um, and in that they had quite a bit of support. Obviously, from groups you would kind of expect the the uh, broader LGBT advocacy community. Uh, what you might not expect, you have professional associations. We uh, you mentioned the American Bar Association involved mm-hmm. in uh, involved in the development of public interest litigation. Uh, the American Bar Association is a very powerful advocacy group uh, in its own right. It heads a monopoly still over. Accrediting law schools is that correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's right. Uh, and uh, obviously, un- until fairly recently, I mean, it still rates judicial nominees, but until very recently, it had a direct line to uh, to prevet uh, judicial nominees. Uh, the Trump administration stopped that earlier, earlier, early in its uh, early in its administration. But uh, so, a very powerful advocacy group. Uh, and then you also had, unsurprisingly, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, which is uh, a militant atheist anti-religion advocacy group. Uh, and then you also had sort of broader liberal and left-wing organizations uh, like the Service Employees International Union, labor union,
0: and the American Psychological Association. And uh, which reminds me actually of uh, something Beckett was involved in some years ago, and that uh, and it goes to this accreditation issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, because uh, when when I was paying my debt to society by serving on the Domestic Policy Council at the White House uh, back in the second uh, George W. Bush term, I actually read every word of the statutes on higher ed accreditation.
1: My condolences. Yes,
0: Well, it was quite terrifying because for those of you who know public choice theory law, which is crudely put that... um, Government and all all entities try to abuse government to protect themselves and hurt any potential competitors And
2: government will happily aggrandize whatever power it can attain for itself.
0: Yes. So the 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 accreditation uh, laws are unbelievably perverted to defend existing accreditors of all things higher ed now that's for all of higher ed that gets very complicated but let's just focus now on the Bar Association and the Psychological Association the uh the bar association is the only accreditor for any law school in America and even beyond that let's say tomorrow afternoon there were a new accreditor um there's two huge problems one is that it is illegal for a school to be accredited by two entities so a law school would have to say we don't care about the bar association's accreditation of us we're going to go for the new guy um a extremely unlikely thing to happen especially given the second obstacle which is Most states, not quite all, but most states in America require that you have a degree from an ABA accredited law school before you are even eligible to be considered to join the bar of that state. Um, So it's absolutely impossible for there to be, uh, under those laws, it's impossible for there to be a new accreditor of law schools. And the ABA actually is one of the most abusive accreditors um, on this. They are fiercely... uh, aggressive in requiring all kinds of affirmative action reverse discrimination in faculty hiring and student admissions and the rest. Uh, But what Beckett had the run-in with was the American Psychological Association. And that is, uh, again, it's a uh, nationwide professional organization, and it accredits uh, graduate psychology programs all over America. And again, what you in most states have is you need to have studied at an American Psychological Association accredited school in order to become a clinical psychologist or a licensed social worker, things like that in most states. So that is an incredible monopoly power. I typically thought that the left was supposed to think that monopolies are a bad thing, but somehow these monopolies don't seem to bother anybody. In fact, hardly anybody knows about all this. But So the way Becca got involved with with the Psychological Association, oh, maybe a dozen or more years ago, was there was a push in the APA's membership to delete a little footnote that they had in their uh, own rules for accrediting uh, psychological grad programs. And that was a little footnote that said, uh, you know, you're not supposed to discriminate on the basis of religion and race and this, that, and the other, with the footnote saying, um, but you are allowed to, if you're a religious insti- uh, institution of higher education, you can take religion into consideration for hiring and, mm-hmm. uh, and admissions. And of course, obviously, if you were a, uh, a Jewish uh, school that was going to be teaching about psychology, you might prefer Jewish psychology professors. And as I said, there was a push among the membership to try to throw that out, which would have effectively changed uh, what's permissible at every psychology program in America. Uh, uh, Beckett's famous founder, Seamus Hassan, uh, had a full and frank discussion with the leadership of the Psychological Association and the, the footnote was not challenged, but that's the little thread by which, to this day... Uh, all of this is hanging. And that's a that's a scary prospect, isn't it, Lori?
1: Yes, it certainly is. This is actually something we talked about in our uh, brief before the Supreme Court in the Janus case, uh, because accreditors do have enormous power. And we spoke about the APA issue and also the um, Gordon College situation, where there is a threat to revoke accreditation from Gordon College because of its Orthodox Christian beliefs about marriage. Uh, and so what you have is these uh, secondary powers who are not governmental actors and the courts have not said are state actors and yet they wield enormous power. Uh, with the authorization of the government. And what we call it was coercion laundering. When you hide the source of the money, we call that money laundering. When you hide the source of the coercion, we call it coercion laundering. <laughs> and that's exactly I what like the government that. is doing here. It is uh, giving some power to a third party and then allowing that third party to place requirements on people the government would never be able to do directly. And that's exactly what was going on in Janice. That's what's going on with some of these accreditation issues we've seen pop up.
0: And yet I don't correct me if I'm wrong, I, I have never heard of any direct legal challenge to this kind of accreditation issue for in any sphere. I don't know of any.
1: No, I'm not aware of any. I think it's all been, you know, discussions within uh, legislation and behind the scenes, but we have not yet seen a full-on court challenge to the powers of the accrediting agencies.
0: Uh, no, that's that's a shocking thing, and it, it's funny. I am so old that I can remember when it was very common to say, you can't legislate morality and don't impose your morality on me, and yet it sounds like the state of California, for instance, and uh, the state of Illinois. Once,
2: w- once again, we have had a run-in with Baron's Law, the principle that all process arguments are insincere, including this one, uh, <laughs> this time by the uh, ostensibly libertine left.
0: The, uh, well, now... Uh, again, our our bigger picture here that we're looking at is the the whole First Amendment um, is is highly controversial. It would seem, uh, and again, I like to run through my little quick thing that the very first thing in the First Amendment people often forget, but the first liberty there is is it's religious religion. liberty, and I think the I think the First Amendment kind of makes sense in the in the way of first it mentions religious liberty, which is really freedom of thought, freedom of belief, and thought and conscience, and then it mentions. Uh, uh, free speech, and then it mentions free the f- free press and free association, and it sort of they sort of naturally flow from the thought all the way to speaking to then organizing uh, as the press or, or organizing in or collective action, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, to do that. And I think in America there still is a great support for the First Amendment, and yet. Uh, the folks who are not happy about some of these decisions we've been discussing including the New York Times Seem to think that it's a strate- good strategic move to object to the this First Amendment protection by the court
2: Yeah, the uh, the New York Times on the on the front page uh, last last weekend uh, Did wrote, ran this article this article which they claimed was a news analysis and they based it off some uh some paper, uh I think it was Alex Griswold of the Washington free Beacon had a pretty good debunking of it uh, a couple days uh right before the fourth um and it involved, you know, classifying the speech cases that had come before the Supreme Court in recent years, and then, oh no, that it's the the conservative speech is winning and and that that's somehow bad and of course, the issue is that. For a long I mean for a long time the left had a fair gripe that the um, that conservative traditionalist institutions, conservative and traditionalist governments, things like flag burning bans uh, you know restrictions on on assembly and protest that they were that those governments were infringing on liberal speech and in some cases explicitly politically liberal speech. Um, but in recent years the the right has sort of conceded to the old the old liberals of the 70s that actually you guys had a point actually we do need this this free exchange of ideas we do need this free exchange of thought and the um I mean I believe it was antonin Scalia who wrote the decision that overturned the federal ban on flag burning is that he or, cer- he certainly joined it and he I certainly I yeah who wrote it yeah well he mm-hmm. He certainly he certainly sided with it, and and but in in recent years, of course, it's been the progressive left that has uh, really aggressively, especially in this sort of compelled speech sphere uh, that we've been that we've been discussing today, where there's you know a law that you have to uh, you know bake a cake celebrating a same-sex wedding, even if you're a religious Christian, where you have to. Uh, you have to advertise for state-funded abortions if you're going to try to persuade women not to have abortions. Where you have to uh, fund a labor union that you would rather not represent you at all. That only can represent you as a privilege to the labor union to increase its bargaining power. Uh, and the and these regulations have have come under have come under uh, have had to be struck down by the Supreme Court. Have had to go before the Supreme Court because they're now proliferating. Uh, And so, again, a change from the left is winning free speech cases at the Supreme Court to the right is winning free speech cases at the Supreme Court, if anything, is because the left has started attacking right-wing speech.
0: (laughs) Well, there's also the demographic question here, uh, Laurie, that I wanted to ask you about, and that is that uh, it would seem—this is is actually somewhat controversial on how to interpret the the numbers—but it is broadly believed to be the case that belief— religious belief is diminishing in America, and leaving aside the question of of exactly how accurate that is, uh, to the extent there's anything to that, uh, do you think that is going to affect the long-term prospects of the First Amendment's religious liberty guarantees?
1: Uh, You know, I am very hopeful about the long-term prospects of the First Amendment's religious liberty guarantees. I think it is true that we have seen... um, an erosion of understanding of why these are so important. I think one of the most disappointing things I have seen just in the time that I have been doing this work is the erosion of support for the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is a law that had a broad coalition from both sides of the aisle. It passed the Senate unanimously. Chuck, Schumer, you voted can <laughs> Chuck Schumer voted for it. Chuck Schumer voted for it. Chuck Schumer voted for it.
0: And President
1: Clinton (laughs) signed it. Exactly. This was seen as completely non-controversial. And of course, now when states try and pass their own versions of this federal law, they're labeled as discriminators and have other states banning travel and all sorts of other uh, overreaching things in order to penalize states for doing this. And so what we've seen is an unwillingness to understand that religious freedom means people are going to disagree, and sometimes those people you really don't like are going to be protected by this law, and we're seeing less and less support for that, what should be a, a broad-based and fundamental American ideal, which is that we all have freedom, and yes, that includes the freedom to disagree with each other.
0: Uh, no, that, that makes sense, and you know that brings us actually to uh, a final topic, and that would be the open seat now on the court given that uh, Mr. Justice Kennedy uh, has announced that he will be leaving at the end of this month um, and one of the persons on the shortlist list uh, to replace him uh, supposedly is Amy Coney Barrett and when she was up Senate confirmation to the DC Circuit Court of Appeal, where she's now sitting. Seventh, seventh, or sorry, seventh, it was seventh not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm pr- I, I am almost
2: certain it was seventh. It was a
0: seventh. I apologize. Sorry, wrong, wrong, wrong appellate court. Uh, but when she was up for her confirmation on that, um, there were multiple senators,
2: uh, who Inf- infam- infamously, uh, Dianne Feinstein of California reading from a prepared, reading from what was obviously a prepared, prepared set of questions, uh, asked, uh, Coney Barrett, who is a practicing Catholic, the dogma lives loudly within you.
0: <laughs> yes, as if there were. So do you do you have any worries, not just with her, but within whoever may be uh, nominated to fill, to fill that seat, that their personal religious beliefs are going to be uh, a source of controversy? Uh,
1: that's certainly something we're concerned about because we've seen it already with some of the circuit court nominees. Uh, our Constitution has a no religious test clause. It is supposed to be uh, blind when it comes to judges, just as justice is supposed to be blind, uh, not considering the people before it, but considering the merits of the case. And so there is a real danger that rather than considering the merits of the nominees before them, we're going to see senators attacking them because of their religious beliefs. And I think that's exactly contrary to what our constitution was created for.
0: Yes, that, and I, I would add too that the, um, another senator who went after, uh, uh, Ms. Barrett, uh, uh, before she was uh, elevated to the bench herself, uh, was the now disgraced Senator Al Franken, um, who's had to resign thanks to his little encounter with the Me Too movement, but uh, he worked her uh, and battered her over and over because she had once spoken at an Alliance Defending Freedom event, now ADF being uh, another public interest law firm organization, um, and He hammered her over and over because ADF has been called a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, And uh, Laurie, do you think that's that it isn't certainly quite possible that any number of people who may get nominated to fill Justice Kennedy's seat will have spoken at an ADF event somewhere or been on a panel with an ADF lawyer?
1: Uh, Certainly. This is a group that defends religious freedom uh, for Christians and has been active in this for many years. They're not a hate group. And the idea that you would list them on a list alongside the KKK is just ridiculous. And I think shows that this term of hate group is actually the thing being weaponized to try and penalize people who disagree with you. And so I think it's quite likely that we will see some more attacks along those lines from people who have uh, spoken in front of very mainstream Religious freedom groups uh, and other uh, conservative organizations so if, who if may find one, these If attacks. there's one kind of
2: ele- element for for hope in anticipation of those of those kind of attacks, I think, uh, especially after the settlement with Majid Nawaz, the uh, British politician who the Southern Poverty Law Center mm. had accused of being an anti-Muslim extremist, when he himself is a uh, Moderate Muslim is not a term I particularly like. I don't think it's very descriptive. But a non extremist, um, and practicing Muslim, and a non non extremist <laughs> <Yes>. practicing <laughs> practicing Muslim who believes in who believes in the Islamic religion, uh, and uh, they called him an anti Muslim extremist. And he sued he sued them, and the Southern Poverty Law Center ended up settling for a couple million dollars. Now the SPLC uh, has more money stashed away than. Certainly, that I will ever see. Yes, about uh,
0: half a billion dollars sitting in its uh, accounts, many of them offshore accounts. Uh, and again, go to influencewatch.org for all the uh, juicy details on exactly what sort of organization the SPLC really is.
2: But that whole the 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 attacks on on Nawaz and on uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali and others uh, really did ex- really did expose how extremist, how radical uh, the SPLC is. And again, it's unfortunate that events late in 2017 sort of brought the threat of, uh, of, uh, far right extremism back and gave the SPLC, uh, you know, like, uh, like shock paddles that they didn't deserve. <laughs> um, yes. but, well, but there's, but there's certainly that, that, uh, they, they, they have taken steps that have pretty actively discredited them with people who are paying attention.
0: Yes, well, and uh, I suppose we should also advertise our own episode a month or two back, uh, focusing on SPLC. Uh, I liked what uh, uh, Ms. Barrett said to Senator Franken uh, as he kept battering her about how could you possibly be associated with these monsters. And she looked at him puzzled and said, well, you know, they're currently co-counsel with Wilmer Cutler Pickering in a Supreme Court Case and I really don't think that Wilmer Cutler Pickering, one of the uh, largest and most prestigious law firms in the country, uh, would be co-counsel with a genuine extremist group. Uh, but
2: of course, that uh, that didn't satisfy it, Mr. Didn't, Frank. And didn't they didn't they argue? Didn't they handle argument in Masterpiece? Yes, they did. Uh, yeah, so does that make Sonia Sotomayor and Stephen Breyer? Uh, who <laughs> voted with Who voted, who voted, who voted in Who were the, the the two that made the five five plus two equals seven? Yes, um, it, was, it was
1: Kagan, but yes, same Oh, yeah,
2: Kagan, Kagan, I'm sorry, not Sotomayor. Obviously not Sotomayor.
1: Yes, well, Kagan's actually
0: been very, has been interesting on, um, uh, on the high court. Actually, I'll, I'll, maybe this will be one of our last points, but you never know what your appointees are going to do because in the Hosanna Tabor uh, Lutheran Church and School, which Mm -hmm. was one of those five Supreme Court victories that Beckett has had, uh, Elena Kagan uh, was surprising given that she had been not only, uh, she'd been Obama's Solicitor General and then of course was his uh, pick for the court.
1: Yes, and she criticized uh, the SG's office because she said that what they were doing uh, was saying that religious organizations had no more associational rights than a labor union. And she thought said that was amazing, and not amazing in a good way. And she ended up actually going with Justice Alito and writing a concurrence to this 9-0 opinion, talking about uh, the fact that minister is a term that means different things to different religious organizations, and you need to protect people of all faiths. So I think it was uh, really a strong rebuke of the position that the Obama administration took there.
0: Yes, So, and conversely, Mr. Trump can never be sure, uh, in the end, Whoever uh, he nominates to fill Justice Kennedy's seat, uh, what exactly will happen down the line? It, it's always a roulette wheel uh, <laughs> when you're nominating judges. Uh, well, that is our show for this week. Uh, we want to give a special thanks to Lori Wyndham of Beckett Law for joining us. Uh, If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, you should know that we broadcast a live video version uh, of the podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays. Facebook Live and YouTube, you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. And if you're watching the video version, uh, I want to encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next week.